0: Welcome to Carry the Fire, a podcast where we explore the big questions of life through the lens of the good, the true, and the beautiful. I'm your host, Dustin Kensrue, And my hope is that through these conversations with people of diverse and divergent backgrounds and beliefs, we can glimpse the world anew through each other's unique perspectives.
1: The, um decision to leave faith comes really early in life, well before scientific training commences, like in middle school and early high school, and um, the sense that being inquisitive went mm. from the inside of a faith community was not something that the community really accepted or fostered.
0: Hey, everybody. Today on the pod, we are joined by Elaine Howard Eklund. Dr. Eklund is a professor of sociology at Rice University, where she founded the Religion and Public Life Foundation. She spends much of her time researching the relationship of science and faith as they relate to social groups, and this is also the focus of her new book, which we will discuss throughout the episode. We talk about the importance of both racial and religious representation in the scientific fields. We explore the reasons undergirding the animosity that can exist between the science and faith communities, and Elaine shares her ideas about shared values as a possible way to work past and through these tensions. Let's dive in. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for taking the time. I really, really appreciate it. Sure. So the show is dealing with the good, the true and the beautiful. Um, and that, you know, skews different than whoever I'm talking to, but I like to start off by kind of getting under those questions almost in those lenses by talking about wonder. And, uh, specifically I like to ask what would give you a deep sense of wonder when you were a kid?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Um, So I was raised, um, really different than where I live now. So I live in a really urban area in Houston, Texas, Mm -hmm. um, you know, third largest city in the U S and I was raised in a really rural area in upstate New York around like cows and horses. And we had a small farm and, I was actually as a kid allowed to just go out into the field and um, the woods. So I would like walk, you know, I remember being like six, seven, eight years old and like walking along in the woods, which I can't imagine like turning loose my seven-year-old now. Um, But I would like lie down on my back in the grass in the field and look at the sky. And I remember just thinking that there was a sense of vastness and beauty in nature. So I think the first, um, the first real like conscious memory I have, you know, I'm in my mid forties now, but if I said to you like, what's the first conscious memory you have of really feeling a sense of wonder or awe would be like in those moments when I was six, seven, eight years old, just on my back in the field, looking up at the sky and however you would as a child thinking that, that there was a real sense of vastness there.
0: Mhm. That's really cool. I bet you could see stars pretty good out there too.
1: You could see the stars, and um, it's something we don't have in a big city. You know, like I can't remember the last time I really saw like a good constellation because you don't have the the really dark because we have so much um, artificial light. You never have a really truly dark night. Um, yeah, and that's that's a kind of. If I stop and think about it, there's a little bit of loss there.
0: It's interesting. I feel like, I don't know, maybe this is not interesting, but it, it's, everyone has different answers to that question, but I, I'm starting to see, I think one of the most common threads is, like, has to do with someone being alone, usually, and able to reflect on whatever is happening like there's there's something about being out in the world like some people say it was you know riding my bike around when i was a kid i was you know i I had this sense of autonomy or individual like you start to to separate yourself from i'm part of this community i'm part of this and there's something about like what am i in the middle of this Mm -hmm. huge thing that's cool yeah Um, yeah so you just came out with a new book why science and faith need each other um and i want to talk a little bit about the book and hear like why so you're a sociologist and you are interested in how people think why they think and especially in groups yeah mm-hmm. um so why this book and why now
1: you know a lot about sociology more than most people do <laughs> <laughs> Um, Maybe you've like read up, but yeah, so sociologists do study groups and how people act in groups different than the how they might on their own. And Mm. I'm not sure most people understand that. Um, I have been for probably the past 15 years um, doing surveys and interviews with both scientists and what they think about religion and with religious people and what they think about science and scientists. And obviously there are are people who are part of both communities. Mm -hmm. And something that I started to notice is that um, the big science and faith conversation, you hear it now during the pandemic, um, it's about ideas, like who has truth and um, what's the right kind of science, what's the right kind of religion. But these are also communities of people, right? And so I think that's my unique approach as a sociologist is that the scientific community is a community of people who interact yeah. with each other and the faith communities uh, are communities of people that interact with each other. And it's really important to, if you want these two communities to relate well, to start to think about um, practices and values that might hold them together. And so I started, Looking not for the things that make the communities different, but for the things that make the communities the same, like what are the things that they have in common and then how might they build on their their commonalities, their common values um, to reach some sense of common ground around issues that are really, really important to everyone. And so um, I analyzed my data in a way that is a little bit different than I usually do. Started really looking for those common values and, and that's how I came upon things like, um, you know, a sense of awe in the natural world, um, humility. And I didn't know that this book would come out right in the midst of a global pandemic. <laughs> you know, when you write books, you write them years, um, it take, they take a long time. And so, but it's been okay because I think our society is so polarized right now um, just around everything and every way you can think about polarization. And so thinking about what are the things that hold us in common um, that help us, you know, I think from my own human sensibility, perhaps from my own spiritual tradition, having been raised in Christian communities all my life, like that sense of kind of common humanity, That we need to recapture that and so maybe it's the right time to to look for the things that hold the scientific community and the faith community together
0: yeah i really like how you frame that in the book um your writing style is great by the way it's like very very uh very clear uh but has like a a nice flow to it i i (laughs) i feel like there's definitely times when people write books and they're not actually writers and it's a bit rough and uh, you definitely have a skill for it so it's great
1: thank you um, for saying that it was actually not um if i may just add a parenthetical comment there yeah. um this book was a it's really deeply affirming to me that you said that because this book was a bit of a risk for me to write because i also felt like hey, if I want communities that I'm part of to come together, I need to reveal a little bit more of myself than I usually would in an yeah, academic I, book. And I thought I felt kind of morally compelled to do that. I'm like, I'm asking them to lay themselves on the line and to put down, um, you know, to share openly about their own stories. So I should do the same as a kind of model. And so uh, that was a bit of a risk for me, I should say. So it's really affirming that you would say no, that. that. Thank you.
0: Yeah, I, I was also going to bring up how well you weave your own... Story throughout the book because it really does like that vulnerability is what draws people in. I'm I'm a, a musician and songwriter, and so I it's something I slowly have been learning, you know, through my career. But um, it it's it's always scary, but it's always you know that that's the when you really let it out there, that's how people um, are drawn in, and I think especially in this kind of a question that you're dealing with, and you're writing this um, mostly f- to help Christians and Christian com- communities think through this stuff. Um, and I think your vil- vulnerability draws them in and and disarms a bit of the defensiveness that's natural in, I think, this case. So thank you for that. So you start out talking about uh, the relationship of fear and anger. Um, and I'm curious I, how, so you talked, you have an anecdote in there about losing your daughter at the park one day and how the fear kind of turned into anger when you found her and um, which any parent has been there for sure. Uh, but what made you start connecting that idea to the issues of the way that um Christians and uh, science or scientists relate?
1: Um, I started thinking about when I, well, let me start back. I have presented um, my research on the science community's attitudes towards religion um, and religious people's attitudes towards science. I probably give, I'm not bragging, I'm just sort of setting the stage. I've probably given literally hundreds of academic talks about those topics. And every now and then I get someone who's really, if I please accuse my friend, who's really pissed off. Like they will stand up and yell at me. (laughs) And um, I have other academic colleagues who study other things. I'm like, does anyone ever yell at you after your talks? I'm like, (laughs) no, like I don't get much yelling, you know? Um, And this there's often at first I was kind of defensive, especially when I was younger and a bit more inexperienced. I was, that really took me aback and made me really anxious and really defensive. And, um, but as I, you know, you kind of get inoculated to these sorts of things. And as I listened, I thought like, what's really going on there? Why does this stuff make people so mad? Um, And I got a chance to talk to a man, a scientist who was really mad, um, once. And I said, if you don't mind me just being really transparent with you, I'm really intrigued why me saying that there are religious scientists like made you so angry Mm -hmm. and he and his story started with um, a story um, about his pastor Mm -hmm. and his pastor as a child and how his pastor as a child um, was really not supportive of him going into science, kind of picked on the science community and scientists. And I thought that's interesting that it wasn't some kind of esoteric or like abstract belief system or intellectual debate that made him angry, that it was rooted in some kind of personal experience. Mm. And I don't know why, I mean, I guess it was just kind of a moment of insight um, that I started then looking for the stories that were behind the really strong emotions. Like, mm-hmm. what happened to you that made you respond that way to me putting up a statistic? I mean, like, what that doesn't make any sense to me that I would put up some numbers from a survey and people would get really mad. Yeah. And that um, it started to make sense to me when people told me their own stories and their own stories of how they hadn't been supported when they had been really inquisitive about science, and in the particular framing of this book, I'm writing for Christian communities because those are the communities that have, at least in the modern day, some of them have had some real concerns about science and fear of science, and that um, started to make more sense to me. I think when I started listening for the stories behind the fear, and um, the I'm sorry, the stories behind the anger, and that threaded me through a little bit to looking for the fears, if that made sense.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's interesting that the fear and anger show up on both sides of this Mm -hmm. where Mm
1: -hmm.
0: I guess for slightly different reasons, it seems like often the fear that Christians have towards science is something where, and add to this if you—if I'm not hitting it all, but like it seems like maybe the rude thing is they're afraid it's going to shake my faith somehow. It's going to throw me off. And at least for this scientist who you talk to, it seems like the fear there is like, I really loved, and it seems like a few people in the book had that look where like, I loved science and i I see the good that it's doing and I was shunned. I was pushed away. Uh, by my community and so I'm I'm heading out right like I'm not going back
1: yeah I think that's exactly right um, and that's why I start the book talking about too that one of the first chapters is is just explaining that these are two communities mm-hmm. and um, because the shunned by your community was a really common motif um, and, you know for scientists who at once were people of faith and then you know, felt like science led them away. Um, It was often not some, like, deep intellectual struggle, which I think is, like, the word on the street, that, you know, you learn more about science, and then, you know, you let go of these childish matters of faith. Um, I don't, I didn't really find that very often. I mean, I've interviewed about, you know, 2,000 scientists and done um, surveys with just thousands. And this is not too common, that it's just some sort of, like, intellectual struggle. It's more often that, you know, for those who were persons of faith, that they, that the scientists, I mean, um, were not encouraged to be inquisitive um, when they were children or were, maybe they couldn't put words to it at the time, but felt a sense of, like, their parents and their church leaders and others um, had a real fear of the scientific community that they picked up on, Um it made them feel like you couldn't be these two identities at the same time,
0: mm-hmm. yeah. I really liked that there was a part in the book where you're talking about, I think, in the humility section. Um, there's a scientist talking about who's a Christian who started thinking about the way that they had to think about, um, you know, various hypotheses as they're you know, working in whatever field they're working on. And they have to hold those hypotheses loosely because they're not, you know, it's not just fact. It's like, these seem to fit the data that I have right now. And so that's helpful. And it it's at least giving me some idea about truth in the world and, and relation to reality. But I know it's not perfect, but I'm going to keep going mm-hmm. with it, open to revising it as I learn more things, right? And he started bringing that back into his view for his theological constructs as well and saying, I I can hold these loosely understanding that, um, you know, they're, they're imperfect, right? I'm, I'm imperfect. My understanding of things is imperfect. And I love that idea of, and it's a, it's a very interesting way of connecting those two worlds is, is trying to make the point that the things that you think about either science or about God are, in very real, real ways constructs and they are not perfect. And I, I think that for a lot of Christians though, that in itself is a very scary idea.
1: It is, it is. Um, and there's a sense that, um, I think we're, we're taught implicitly sometimes in certain kinds of church communities to see the Christian faith or faith broadly is being extremely fragile. Mm. And that's not been my understanding from scientists who have managed to um, really uh, gain a deeper faith through the kind of scientific work that they do, that have, that their faith has grown um, in tandem or integrated with, um, however you think about it, with their, with their science and um, that somehow they were taught um, in their faith communities that faith was not fragile and that faith could expand, or even that yeah. their scientific understanding was sort of like integral or a part of or birthed from their faith, which you know many um, early scientists thought of science that way as as um, understanding. You know, going back to the beginning of our conversation, sort of um, way of pursuing wonder of you know God's creation or. Um, appreciating wonder.
0: Yeah. I like that you brought up the fragility cause I, it's something that I've thought of a lot. And in, even if it's not talked about um, like openly, like usually I think it's not as much telling people that it's fragile, but it's, it's something that they're picking up on through like, I, this goes back to, you know, the social aspect, like there's this osmosis of, and I, th- part of it, I think, is they, you know, you can't turn your brain off. So they are seeing that <laughs> there's things in science that are corresponding to reality and helping us to develop technologies and make their life better. And th- they're seeing all that. And at the same time, they are worried that it's somehow going to come in and infect or undo whatever else is going on with them. And they, they see these contradictions and they don't know what to do about it, and so it's a like a a retreat because they feel they' there's a visceral feeling of the fragility even if they can't put words to that um, and it ends up making i think the responses to things that uh, i mean I guess this gets into <laughs> how we're less rational than we want to believe a lot of times, but there's like a rational way to think through something and then. There's the socially felt way that you can't really get past. Um that's a really weird way of saying that. But
1: I like how you're saying that. Um Yeah, I do think we're less rational than we think. Um and that our ability to be rational, um, or I guess where our ability to understand is really constrained, right? And so, um, the enemy of deep faith is perhaps a, a extreme certainty mm-hmm. <laughs> that when you, when you encounter science, um, you know, something about science that's hard or hard to, to put together with faith, um, I guess what I was trying to get at in the chapter on humility as a common um, or shared value between the science and the faith community is that uh, from the standpoint of the faith community perhaps the the best response is what can i learn here what do i need to learn here in order to put together what i know from from my faith with what i'm learning from science like the, that sort of question you know what do i need to be asking what do i need to learn mm-hmm. um and then from the science side I, I wrote i really did write this book for for christian faith communities and I think that's okay to say have your audience, but yeah. um, if I were to write for the science community, I would I would say that they that folks in the science community could also ask a question. You know, what um, and scientists always get very concerned when I say things like this. I should <laughs> say, but what um, what could I learn from faith, or how could what's happening in um faith communities be helpful to some of the goals I have as a scientist. So I've become really passionate in the past few years about faith communities and science communities, for example, working together to increase um, equality and representation in science, especially for um, black and Hispanic Christians. Mm-hmm. So um, black and Hispanic Americans are really, really likely to be Christians and, are super underrepresented in the science community. Mm -hmm. And yet, um, you know, Hispanic Catholic churches and um, Black Protestant churches are really education friendly. And I don't think most in the science community would ever think of, like, churches as sites where they could um, help mentor kids and work together to increase diversity in science. Mm -hmm. Like, that's not even something like faith is a problem for science is, is the rhetoric for um, many scientists, and thinking of faith as a pot, as bringing possibilities for science for shared goals between science and faith communities is not the framing that most scientists have. And but when I say this, um, there always will be, you know, a black or a Hispanic scientist will, who will say to me after the talk, "I'm so glad you said that. Um, I was really supported in my educational goals by my faith community." Mm. Like and. I just really want people to know that and to to think of creative ways that these communities could join together.
0: Yeah. That's, that's great. Um, yeah, the numbers are pretty staggering on how underrepresented, uh, those minorities are in the scientific world and I'm all for anything that's helping to change that. So I like that you're highlighting that in the book.
1: Well, think about the pandemic, just to pause on that for a minute, and the kind of you know, voices we've heard some great scientific voices, and um, the, the faith voices that we've heard that sometimes were not cooperating with public health, I, I think are the, by far the minority from my research. Um, oh, yeah. those are the loudest folks, um, and not actually the most representative folks. Um, it but none of the faith or science voices that we're hearing from are, are Black or Hispanic or Asian, really. And so and we know there's just vast inequities um, that the pandemic, pandemic has really um, been much more, has hit Black and Hispanic communities in particular very, very hard. And you know, could it have made a difference to have uh, more Black scientists leading mm. um, during this health crisis? Uh, you know, I think of things like that, like the real social impact, um, the justice impact that we could have by increasing diversity in science and Christians and scientists being, being concerned about that.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. And that, um, I was just talking to someone yesterday on another episode about representation in, uh, media movies, stuff like that. But, um, it, we, I hadn't really thought about before the way, not only that that affects, like it's affecting the person who is in that demographic that they're seeing representation, but it's affecting everybody else as well as they are encountering someone that they might not, like the, the, kind of the idea of the show is like, uh, my podcast is trying to have that diversity and have those different views. Um, but in this case, you're saying, and this goes back to, You know the way we think socially but having someone who looks like you and feels like they represent you giving you the same information that you get from someone else is naturally going to be easier for you to take in and to take seriously and that's um it doesn't make anyone less intelligent it just it's just like the way that we work as social animals
1: that's exactly right um that people do um listen to people from their own communities their own social demographic sorry to use those like very academic words but um you know that they listen to people from their own social communities more Mm. and i think that's really important and people um i mean i guess representation in science is really important because it might mean that scientists um start to notice things that they might not otherwise right like women increasing the proportion of women in science um helped us notice that you know a lot of the baseline health studies were done on men and that their bodies might react differently to different Mm -hmm. uh, drugs that so i mean so equality in science um has a kind of functional purpose right it helps you potentially do better science because scientists from a particular community might notice things that scientists from another community might not um, so I'm thinking about that. Um, yeah, there's just a lot, a lot there. Uh, and that was one of the ways, um, I think I, if I remember correctly, I brought that up in the chapter on, on Shalom that, uh, you know, this kind of idea of seeking peace for the world, that it's having a sense of equality in science and justice in science and, um, might be part of seeking um, peace for the the whole world. for, And that could be something that the scientific community and the faith community could join together on.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, you talked about the story of talking to a, a doctor. Um, they were saying that they were agnostic about belief in God. Um, and they said, because, quote, I can't reconcile a God who would let a kid get stage four neuroblastoma and die a painful death. Uh, when you interview scientists who are atheists or agnostic, how often is the problem of e- problem of evil a major root of uh, the way that they view God?
1: Not very often. I actually was kind of surprised by that. So, you know what Christians think of the of as, I'm no theologian, so I, I don't know if you are, but <laughs> I want to tread lightly here. But what I understand is the theodicy, you know, how can a good God allow evil in the world? I thought that would be part of the intellectual struggle for mm-hmm. more scientists. Um, I didn't find that that was really something that was brought up Very much. I mean, I think that is a real intellectual struggle and an honorable one to have and shows that one um, is focused on suffering and how suffering matters in the Mm -hmm. world and how to alleviate suffering. So I think that's a true and honorable struggle. Um, But it was more often that um, the kind of social pressures and social factors Mm -hmm. and just not thinking that scientists were ought to be part of faith communities or... Um, not having been, um, I I once started asking in one of my studies, the question, tell me a little bit about the God you don't believe in. Yeah, yeah, that's (laughs) a great question. Um, and that ended up being a really helpful question because the, the notion of, and I think there are lots of different kinds of atheists and I'm actually writing a book about that right now and about the varieties of atheists in science, but most often it seemed that there was a kind of social isolation especially for those who had been part of a faith community and then chose not to be part of a faith community um, just a sense that the kind of person they were becoming through their scientific work or just their interest in scientific work or as children their inquisitive nature sometimes the, the um, decision to leave faith comes really early in life well before scientific training commences like in middle school and early high school and um, the sense that being inquisitive went mm. from the inside of a faith community was not something that the community really accepted or fostered so not just acceptance but um i think i would kind of go totally the other direction and say that um, being deeply inquisitive is a kind of gifting that um, faith communities ought to foster not just tolerate and Yeah, it's hard, right? It's really hard. I mean, you get, um, I wanna be kind of kind to faith communities and how I'm talking about them because I'm a parent and I've known lots and lots of faith leaders, Christians, and also imams and rabbis that have been really, really close friends. And your tendency is to wanna keep your faith community together and to um, intense questioning on the part of children, again, can can foster feelings of fear and like Mm. the kids might leave and um i think it's helpful for social science to point out that that is not exactly how it works usually usually people leave because they don't have their questions affirmed and they don't feel like they can safely struggle um with with doubt say um from within faith communities
0: yeah that's really helpful i think for people to hear um Because that is your, you know, that's always going to be the knee-jerk reaction. Like, my community is important and we believe these things. And if you're doubting those things, then I'm worried that you're going to leave or I'm worried you're going to break up the community. Which kind of makes me think back on, and I'm curious if you've studied this at all, but, um, like, the idea that Shared belief is the thing that binds religious community more than shared practice. Like, and when did that come to be as much of an issue? Because it it definitely seems like an outworking of enlightenment thinking and intense rationalism, and has not always historically been the way that uh, faith communities, especially Christian ones, operated.
1: Uh, that is a great comment. Um, that's a really deep comment. Um, I I rem- What's coming to mind is that um, this is not a specifically Christian example, but I interviewed this uh, Muslim scientist in India once who mm-hmm. said to me that um, when I asked him if his faith as a Muslim and his um, science, how they went together or how he connected those two or didn't, Um, he would say, oh my gosh, my um, faith has really enriched my science. Mm -hmm. And I expected him to say something about how like some kind of teaching in the Quran or in Islam broadly um, brought him, you know, some kind of special insight as a scientist. And instead he said that doing the daily prayers, he said, just taught him how to be so disciplined. And he said that that kind of discipline is exactly what you need in science as well he said you need to just keep running experiments he worked as a lab scientist over and over until you get it right and he said you just need to keep getting up and doing it no matter how you feel and i thought wow that is totally different than how i under have understood things um, being raised in a more christian dominant society where faith has come to be more a matter of belief and so then the faith and science discussion in the mm-hmm. west and in the u.s and particularly is one of um you know right beliefs right yep. and we and we very rarely talk about um I, I like the topic of your podcast is on truth and truth too is is um often seen as having a set of propositions and is it also a way of living or maybe even primarily Mm -hmm. a way of living or a set of embodied practices? And I loved that quote with that scientist. And, you know, I consider myself a Christian and, and it was interesting because that really challenged me. And I thought back to the times in my life when I've had doubt of different, uh, lots of I've, you know, you always have different kinds of doubts, right? Um, I just come to accept that. Um, But the most helpful counsel to me, from different, I remember this one spiritual mentor I had, this, um, a woman who said like, why don't you just keep showing up and then report back in a few months and tell me how you're feeling then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I thought that was really good advice. Like the advice being, why don't you just keep doing and see if that, and, and how that changes things. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. I don't know if I'm getting at what you're thinking about, but no, I'm sort totally. of saying things think, that come to mind.
0: Um, yeah, I was just, I just, uh, had a conversation with, Uh, Jared bias, who he co-hosts, um, the Bible for normal people with Pete ends. I don't know if you're familiar with them at Mm -hmm. all, but, um, but he, he, he has a new book that just came out too, that is diving into the idea of truth. And he like sketches that out into like, there's different kinds of truths and, kind of the highest form historically has been this idea of wisdom, which is really a way of being in the world, not a matter of um, if something is, you know, true or false, any factual sense. Um, And he's now at a, a Mennonite church and he was talking about how just the showing up, like the doing life together, patterned after Jesus, like that that was essentially what he had been missing cause he was living so much as in his head earlier in his life and focused on, uh, is this belief right or not? And, um, just showing up would have been like the worst thing <laughs> to him at that moment. But, um, I've just seen it in so many different ways, uh, especially through talking with people in the pod, but that, uh, the value of practice and that, um, not expecting something to happen every time you do something either i think that's uh, maybe that's just uh, you know something from my evangelical background but i always felt like i'm supposed to feel something right now right like i'm supposed to whatever and i you know looking back it's like i'm a very different person than a lot of other people and it's not bad that i didn't feel the same thing that a super charismatic kind of person felt and expressed and um the, like having that freedom to just show up and do the practice without an expectation of what that means, I think is really important. I try to do that with <laughs> meditating now, uh, which is, uh, like I have to keep that focus cause there's so many days where I'm like, why, <laughs> why am I doing this? But I know from personal experience and research, whatever, that it's actually very beneficial to me, even when I can't see it in the moment. And I think a lot of, A lot of things that have been built into faith traditions for a long time function in those same ways where it's like this is an embodiment of a way of being in the world and that can be a lot more important at times or helpful than uh, a specific belief on something.
1: I wish we had more of that. Yeah, yeah. we're in a time where... um, Yeah, I wish there were just... um, a lot
0: more of that emphasis on, on practice and yeah. ways of being. Yeah. Um, I wanted to get back to, cause we were talking about the problem of evil for a second, but, uh, it seems like that played some part in kind of your own young crisis of faith or I'm not, you didn't go way into it in the book, but, um, I'm curious what, brought you back from that
1: um so i think that um i don't want to throw my early faith community under the bus but um, Uh there weren't a lot of uh examples i had as a child of it being okay to um, acknowledge suffering, or to be honest about feelings. Um, mm. So that's a that's a long kind of. it's probably something that other people share with me, right? Um,
0: I need to read and, some more Psalms, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. And so <laughs> I, I, I'm trying to think how I have never come to fully come to terms with. If you're asking in part, you know, did I did I solve the theodicy for myself? I would say no, Mm -hmm. Um, how have I come to live with it well and still be part of an active faith community? I guess I see, um, I guess I learned that uh, the piece of the Christian tradition, which emphasizes um, suffering, the kind of God with us and the pieces Mm -hmm. of the tradition that emphasize the suffering savior somehow became more deeply meaningful to me. And I'm trying to think how that happened. Um, I guess I had people come into my life and I, I don't know that I actually went out, I mean, maybe that was some, I hadn't thought about it this way until this moment, but I guess that was kind of providential. I'm not sure I went out and, you know, as like an 11 year old was trying to find Um, people who had a rich, uh, a deep notion of suffering Mm -hmm. and intention in or in tandem with the Christian faith. But folks just kind of came to me. I mean, I remember one fantastic doctor I had who was a person of faith and just said like, you know, this disease that you have may cause you a lot of pain, but there's ways that you can still live well. And I thought, Oh, Wow. That, that's just something I had, something kind of went on for me there, and I hadn't thought about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had, I met other Christians who had um, really serious illness and had learned how to live well with that and had really um, robust and meaningful lives. Um, and I somehow, you know, came into a community where it was okay to ask hard questions and to kind of sit with those questions.
0: Cool. That's great.
1: That wasn't um, a really great story. No, I'm sorry, it's, but, it's, but it no, was sort it's of fine. a tapestry. I just,
0: <laughs> no, I like that idea because um, that's that's kind of where I landed for a while before some of my ideas on God's agency shifted. But that idea of I clearly am not understanding everything, but if God at all is like what we see in Jesus in this idea of entering into the suffering of the world, participating in that suffering, uh, then there's something cute, good and beautiful in that. And it, it resonates with me. Um, so I think I've just kind of followed that path further down the line, but um, that's also where where I had to go, which I think is a better place to go than... Where I had been before, which is more of like a um, uh, less like of an a uh, dealing with the God suffering and more of like a well, God knows best or God can do what God wants or like <laughs> I don't need like something that just like you have to disconnect more and be like, well, God's just so over there that you know, I guess He he's got a really good reason for the crappy thing that you're going through. It's like, that's too, it's too cut and dry. It's, it's too, I don't know. I, for me, it did, it did harm to my soul to have to hold that, that tension. I think.
1: That really didn't work for me either. I mean, I would say that that was something that, um, I don't know. I guess I've just always been aware of suffering and that there's, there's obviously people who suffer so much more than I do. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, who live in societies which suffer so much more than ours does. Yeah. Um, and just saying that this was all happened for a larger reason in the end didn't really sit with me. Um,
0: but it's clean. <laughs> yeah, it was, It just didn't sit with me well. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um,
1: and so the practice, I mean, and it, it, that's a really, intri- to emphasize that piece of the Christian tradition, which I think is really robust of the suffering Savior, there's, there's been lots of writers who've written really powerful things about this. Um, It is a kind of practice, isn't it? It's a kind of entering in. Um, And so, I I mean, it fits consonant with the kind of things we've been talking about that it does emphasize more the practice and gives us something to um, chew on for how we uh, enter into the suffering of others, right? Like people generally It seems, in my experience, want to be heard and and want to uh, have someone sit with them more than they want to be told the reason for their suffering.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Hey, everyone. If you're already supporting the show through Patreon, thank you so very much. If you aren't yet, I wanted to let you know that you can now become a patron and support the show for as little as $5 a month. Becoming a patron can provide you with a variety of perks, including access to additional content like song lyric breakdown episodes, Q&A episodes where you can submit questions for me to answer, additional conversation episodes that won't show up in the public feed, and access to our Discord board where we're building community and engaging in deeper conversations around the show. Here's a sneak peek at some additional patron-only content. If you've ever tried to actually grab, <laughs> Dan Stoke that he pulled that out. Um, if you ever tried to like hold tightly to a fistful of stand, you'll realize that it all goes away. Is it wet or is it dry? Dry. Okay. okay. That makes more sense. Okay. If it's, it's wet, you can kind of, almost. Yeah, but you'll still have less than you have an open hand. So like if you I, take I, an, I live in a landlocked state and you live in California, so I'm going to trust you on this okay. one. But if you hold sand with an open hand, you actually hold a bunch more of it. Um, Oof. So uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of ways to think about. And I think, I mean, that's one of the bigger themes on Palms is this idea that if you approach things open-handedly, there's more there. There's, You're not um, destroying the thing that you're trying to hold, right? Like. Mm. If you're digging this podcast and want to join me and others like you in our pursuit of the good, the true, and the beautiful, then joining us on Patreon is the best way to do it. Sign up today at patreon.com forward slash carrythefirepod. All right, let's get back to the show. Kind of changing directions a little bit. I was curious in your research, um, as you're talking to Christians about the way they view science, well, first, I asked this because I thought it was interesting, but there was a marked difference in the percentage of Christians who were skeptical of scientists versus science as a whole. Uh-huh. Uh, they were more skeptical of scientists of of people having agendas that were working against whatever they thought they were doing but w- did you get to the bottom of why that was at all like why? Where are they? Why are they feeling so strongly that the the scientists are out to get them? Because I definitely grew up feeling that around me, like in the adults that were around, I like I always was like, it seems weird that they would all all have this agenda together to, I, you know, like it, it just never made a lot of sense to me. But um, yeah, I don't know if you you got to the bottom of that at all.
1: I think a little bit. Um, I wrote this article with a colleague Chris Scheidel in in this journal um, called Public Understanding of Science and your listeners don't need to read this particular article, it's more for academics, but one thing that really struck us is that um, we did a little experiment in a survey and we asked people, um, so Richard Dawkins I don't know if you and the listeners know is the author of um, The God Delusion and is a really Mm -hmm. outspoken scientist and he was the former chair of public understanding of science at University of Oxford, but is more recently written a lot about how, um, you know, religion is horrible for society and inconsistent and sort of, uh, is held up, I think by many Christians as sort of the example. And we found of the new atheists and we found that in our research that, um, when we gave like these little scenarios of a scientist that is, um, you know, sees science and faith as harmonious and well-integrated. So Francis Collins, who's our current National Institutes of Health Director, Mm -hmm. is a very outspoken Christian. And so we gave like a little Collins example and a little Doc's example. And for people who would not heard, and we asked our interviewees if they'd heard of either of them, and really interestingly, and then which they thought was more typical of scientists writ large. Mm -hmm. And for the folks who hadn't heard of either of them, they thought Dawkins was much more typical of scientists. Hmm. And I wonder, so we started to wonder from that if an implication is that there are new atheist scientists writing so much that the broader public is starting to believe that this is how all scientists are. Interesting. And and so we need more examples and people talking and the folks who are in doing scientific work who are part of churches. And I know there are lots of you out there because I know from our interviews and surveys that there are lots of Christians in churches who are scientists, um, but maybe you don't feel like you can talk about it. You know, I mean, is there something that's keeping scientists from talking about their scientific work in their church? And Mm -hmm. maybe that's part of the problem. That's something I've been thinking about.
0: That's fascinating though, that it would seem that if like if those correspondences are you know uh, actually causative, then Dawkins is doing the opposite of what he's trying to do. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like it's it's further, maybe not of what he wants to do. I guess because he just wants to get rid of it all. But he's doing the opposite of what I think a lot of scientists would want is for everyone, Christians included, to just like heed the things that we're learning and Mm -hmm. incorporate them into what they already know about things to be open really. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess that leads into, I was going to ask you what, what are some of the major ways that you see, um, the Christian community, especially the evangelical community? Um, some of the ways that they are, antagonism towards scientific data affecting negatively like the world at large.
1: Well, um to the extent that they um push the idea that scientists have an agenda and it makes people um You know, there are huge um, evangelical Christian churches. And so if the leaders of those congregations push the idea that scientists are against them in a way that leads their congregants not to trust scientists when they give us public health advice, that can have a huge negative impact. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we're seeing that happen in the South a bit. On the other hand, um, a really positive example is that you know, I've also in Houston is um, there's just lots of Christians in Houston. There's lots of people of all religious traditions. It's a very religious city. And I've had some there's been some great examples here. Our team is doing some studies of how religious organizations in Houston are responding to the pandemic. And there is examples of religious organizations like inviting scientists. So for Zoom to give seminars about, uh-huh. you know, how Christians can thoughtfully respond and there's also some examples of folks, you know, of having like special prayer vigils for medical workers over zoom and just like supporting these frontline workers. And, um, there's just some really good examples too that I want to point out. I think it's important that we don't think that the loudest voices are always the representative voices. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. It's helpful, helpful to keep in mind and keep some faith in, uh, humanity. Um, this is slightly dovetailing off that, but as you've looked at the way that um, evangelical communities have kind of bifurcated the, you know, what they already think from information coming in from the sciences, do you see any correlation between what's going on there and what we're seeing now with something like QAnon and the way a lot of evangelicals have gotten swept into that phenomenon? Oh,
1: that's a good question. So, so we did look at, um, in one of the surveys we did, we looked at how religious groups, like, respond to institutions broadly. So, like, do you trust government? Do you Mm -hmm. trust science? Do you trust, like, all kinds of things? And we found that there's, um, amongst some evangelical Christians, there is a predisposition towards mistrust of institutions or, like, um, a propensity to trusting conspiracy theories and things like that. And so I do think that... um, the mistrust of science as an institution, perhaps in social science terms, we'd say, like, how do these things load together or map mm-hmm. together, right? If they how do they fit together is maybe a more commonplace way of understanding it. And I do wonder if, you know, the the distrust of scientists is perhaps part of a larger distrust of authority figures, Um and sometimes authority figures give good reasons not to trust yeah. them. So, you know, and I, so I think we need lots of different examples of people leading thoughtfully. Um, and that we need to to tell religious leaders over and over, I actually lead a seminar for religious leaders in Houston where we meet once a month and folks from lots of different traditions and traditions within Christianity and different religious traditions are part of it. Um, through, through a, a center we have at Rice called the Religion and Public Life Program. And I, I find that sometimes pastors and other faith leaders don't feel like they're necessarily well-respected in society. Mm. And yet these folks have lots of sway over lots of followers. And so giving them resources to, um, you know, thoughtfully engage with culture Um Perhaps I'm a bit of an idealist about that, but (laughs) I I do feel that the, or I do think that the people who are coming seem open to learning and seem, uh, you know, excited to have, you know, conversation partners about how we can work across divisions to reach um, common ground and build common good.
0: Do you get any pushback for that kind of ecumenical activity?
1: Oh, some folks think we're too conservative and some folks think we're too liberal. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. um, so maybe we're in just the right place. Some of my academic colleagues are like, oh my gosh, why spend so much time talking with religious leaders? Like, you know, they're, they're like breaking down society. And then some of my, you know, conservative Christian colleagues and friends, um, you know, I think like, oh my gosh, that's just that's too much. There's, it's too broad here. We, yeah, you know, yeah. it needs to be narrower. Yeah.
0: But that actually dovetails perfectly to what I was going to ask you next uh, in that for a long time, people thought, you know, as science advances and modern life advances, that religion's going to fade away. And we have seen that that definitely is not the case. Um, and we're also seeing kind of a, uh, maybe I'm mischaracterizing this, but I feel like we're seeing kind of a, a resurgence of kind of a fundamentalist thread, uh, throughout globally, uh, even, and that going along with the rise in kind of far right wing politics. And, um, so yeah, it, it hasn't been going away. It seems to be, I would say getting worse in a certain sense, but is there anything hopeful on the horizon that you're seeing, um, in terms of, cause I know a lot of people right now are, Uh, have been leaving churches especially younger people but a lot of them are seem to be trying to find new ways of engaging their faith and so i don't know if you've seen something larger there like is it kind of growing in two different directions or
1: yeah i do see um there it's true that there's a growing proportion of people in u.s society who are not religious and it's true that Um, especially that's, especially so for, for people under 40, um, that said, there are also growing side movements of young people, um, you know, who say things like who hold different kinds of views in tension, Mm -hmm. um, which I, which to me is, um, an example of, um, you know, being able to, to hold um, loosely to their own convictions in, an, in a way which allows them to be in conversation with others. So, for example, you do find um, younger folks who are, um, you know, pro-gay marriage, anti-abortion um, Republicans who are evangelical Christians who are in like these things that just don't usually kind of cross-cut. Mm-hmm. And... I actually am encouraged by that when I see that in surveys and I have lots of examples of that um, of students that I've interacted with who seem to be trying to be involved in various kinds of communities and um, figure out how to humbly listen to others and I'm hoping that some of the conversation groups that I'm part of are leading are, are fostering some of that sensibility. We just need so... Many more examples of people holding um, disparate ideas, intention in creative ways and mm-hmm. um, practicing a kind of radical intellectual hospitality and love for others, because um, the polarization is really not getting us anywhere as a society. Like, like we yeah. have to be able to work together across um, political lines and religious lines and other kind of lines Um, for the good of humanity Um, I mean we're in a really tough spot right now as a society and so I guess I'm encouraged um, by all the young people I work with who say like oh after that course I changed my mind about x or I met someone that I wouldn't have met in other other contexts for Mm -hmm. the work we did here and those kind of examples like keep me going yeah Um, that's
0: great yeah that's really helpful it's cool all right, more of that everyone. All right, I got two more and then I'll I'll let you go. Do you have any consistent practices or habits that are helpful for you?
1: I I think it's hard to remember now. I, I know, should have reread it's, it's my really book. I should have reread my ahead. book before I came on this call. I'm so sorry. It's really embarrassing when the host knows the book better than you do. But I think I um I think I put this in my book uh in the gratitude chapter that I um I have found it extremely helpful, like a past, my pastor um, friend suggested this and I was like, that's so hokey. I hate that, you know, <laughs> this like you write down five good things every day. And I have to say that he was really right that that has been incredibly helpful and to be really detailed, to say like this conversation I had with my daughter at the breakfast table was a really good one. And I'm thankful for that. You Mm -hmm. know, not just that I have a healthy child, which I could say every single day, but getting really detailed about today, this thing happened. And that has been extremely helpful to me, um, as a practice to do every day and to take some time every morning to, um, do some kind of meditation or prayer or, like spiritual reading has mm. been really grounding to me, especially in these pandemic times when I've been spending so much time inside my house mm. um, and recognizing I'm so fortunate to have work I can do from home and yeah. I'm not a frontline worker. I want to honor that, but it's also still hard and having something to set apart to get me in touch with something beyond myself Um, you can get really withdrawn and self-focused in these times, and that's been incredibly helpful. So I think those two things. And then the other thing that um, I would say I'm not so good at, but I hope I'm getting better at, and I like want advice maybe from others about how to do better at this, is I'm easily distracted. I'm interested in many things. And to just, um, when I'm talking to someone really focus on that moment and listening, I have so many meetings with students and I have parenting and I have like so many people Mm -hmm. that I'm responsible for. It's, or that sounds a little bit too self-focused, but you know, that I have a part in their care and I want to just focus in on each person when I'm with them and not be thinking about other things. And, you know, sometimes on the phone and I'm also checking email while I'm talking to someone and you know, like it's just really tempting if you're in any kind of leadership to always feel like you're missing something or something's going on. And I think that's the, um, I think that kind of sensibility that we're always on top of everything and need to be on top of everything um, is the kind of enemy of authentic spiritual living. Um, I've learned that from the scientists I work with, and I've surveyed and interviewed, like when they have scientific insights, often it's because they were really paying attention and let themselves be set apart for a while. Mm. And I think that's something that I just need to do more on the everyday is like kind of lean into what's really happening, especially the people that I'm relating to in the moments that I'm relating to them.
0: Yeah, that's great. Yeah, definitely, definitely a struggle on that one too. But something I think, I think I'm growing in as well. I find it hard on doing the podcast sometimes in the sense of not that I'm thinking about something else, but I get intrigued by something someone's saying and then they keep talking and I like, I have a really hard time being like, I want to follow that thought, but now they're over here and I've learned to sometimes I'll just write like a word to so I can remember uh-huh. and then stay with them. But, uh, Yeah. right last question uh what are some of the ways that you regularly seek out or encounter beauty in your life
1: i do um i guess go back to the thing i said at the very beginning that i do find a lot of um beauty in nature and i want to um like find ways to engage with that um i mean you know, some of the scientific work I've done and talking to scientists um, has, you know, made me really realize that our natural environment is at risk through climate change and all kinds of things. And and I think part of us engaging that work is recognizing the core beauty that's in nature and the kind of good that we get from engaging it. Um, so I try to regularly engage nature. and. I'm not a great artist, <laughs> um, by any one stretch of the imagination, but, um, you know, from the time my child was young, I've always like tried to paint with her and mm. like engage a creative side and encourage her to create when she's feeling sad or down. And I think that's kind of taught me some things about engaging with beauty. And recently, you know, we can get kind of hard on ourselves, um, in these times in particular, right? Cause there's so much suffering going on around us. And I've, there's a piece of me lately that's been saying like the struggle I'm having now and trying to be better in these times is like its own kind of beauty. And it's not as if, um, I don't know, to I don't want to necessarily get too spiritual, but I'm, I'm sort of thinking about how like God created each one of us, if you think about it that way with all that we needed, right. Um, to do whatever we're supposed to do. And so my own struggle then has a kind of beauty and, you know, I just want to acknowledge that.
0: Hmm. That's great. Uh, well, thank you again for coming on. That was very enjoyable conversation.
1: You're a great interviewer. Well, yeah. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah. It was really enjoyable for me too. At the end of kind of a hard day, I didn't know if I was gonna have enough energy for this, but I really appreciate your, um, you have a very thoughtful spirit about you. Thank oh, you. Thanks. I do
0: want to say this book is very, very great. Uh, It's short, concise, well-written. I actually really appreciate that. I I hate when books are longer than they need to be. But it's got these, yeah, these short little chapters. It's just what they need in them. Um, Yeah, so if you or someone you know is uh, struggling with embracing science, grab the book. Uh, It's called Why Science and Faith Need Each Other. Uh, is there somewhere else they should be following you, checking out what's going on with you?
1: Yeah, I'm on um, Twitter at um, Rice RPLP. And I also have a website, which is just uh, com.
0: Awesome. Cheers. If you have a moment today, it would help a ton if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And share this episode with a friend. Uh, Be sure to follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at carrythefirepod. I want to thank my producer Andy Lara and all of our executive producers: Chris Reeves, Tony Panaro, Sam George, Reed Duchess, Thomas Fortcourt, Shamir Hassan, Amy Armstrong, Luis Rivera, Gabe Munoz, Cameron Lane, Hamza Babihana, Michael Maitland, Adam Collins, Susanna Coleman, Ian Hunt, John Diego, Jess Card, Mark Weiss, Brianna Webb, John Bucken, Denise Sugita, Colin Hawthorne, Brian Weisbecker, Josh Malara, Eric Gonzalez, Matthew Alkan, and Tiffany Payne. Thank you all so much for carrying the fire with me, and I'll see you next time.